I was talking before I even got the recording started. Why? Because I am so, so excited to be talking more. And, and this is one of my favorite topics. I think that what we believe informs every aspect of our lives, that our beliefs run everything, that whatever is good or not so good in your world is there because of what you believe about something or someone. So to help us understand what we need to believe is my friend Jonathan Dunn. So Jonathan, please join me in the studio and everybody help me welcome, I love technology, Poof, it's magic. It's Jonathan right here. It's great to be here, my great friend, on your beautiful virtual stage with such a wonderful cause. Beyond honored to be here, my friend. Oh, I'm and so many great. friends. <laughs> and many friends. Jonathan, I am so excited for this conversation. You gave me a challenge when we first met. I don't know that you know that you challenged me. But you gave me a challenge because after we were done talking, I'm like, yo, tell me more. What is it that you do? And you said, no, come experience what we do and you'll learn about me there. And I'm like, huh, all righty then. And as soon as I could fit it into my schedule, I made it to your event. And it was like, yeah, I get it. There's something about you, Jonathan, that's a little different. So let's go and let the people get to know you. Tell us about the world according to Jonathan. Ooh, wow, I knew it would be a great icebreaker question and I've watched some of the other speeches. And the world according to me, well, as you know, I am the founder of the Dream Leader Institute where we work with individuals and organizations, helping them to reach their full potential. Uh, but as far as the world, according to me, why I even got into this line of work, uh, like so many of the people watching and so many of the people who are speakers, I am a survivor of childhood trauma. And, uh, you know, culminating with, as you saw in my video, an attempt on my own life in 1996. So Glad it didn't work out. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad it didn't work out. I'm going to pause there. When you say, as I saw in your video, let's remember that it's not just the two of us in this conversation. Yes, yes. So yes. Say, say where that video is. Yes, my, I, I made it through that and I went on to get married. I have two beautiful children, one named Kaylee, who is 22 and about ready to graduate from college, and my son, Gunnar, who is 15. And thank you for the point of calibration there too, Jackie. Still getting used to this whole virtual world. Uh, and my style of parenting with my own kids has been always asking them what their dreams are and how I can support them on their dreams. What obstacles can I help them with? And two years ago, my daughter said she didn't like the way the world was going and wanted to do something about it. So besides volunteering with several organizations, she told me she wanted to start a YouTube channel where we shared all of our stories about life and where we could show that vulnerability is strength. And she wanted to start a YouTube channel. Uh, the, the channel is titled after one of her favorite stories, 
of when I got bullied as a little boy and stuck in a porta potty and had it flipped over. Uh, but on our channel, which is the Hey oh, You, wait, get wait, out wait, of the wait, 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 I'm not going to let you yes. tell the name of the channel yet. I'm yeah, going okay. to unpack this. Because okay. for anybody who's like, what did he just say? <laughs> okay. So you're talking about a real life experience. Mm -hmm. You were bullied. Mm -hmm. And on that particular day, the bullies locked you in a porta potty. Yep. We, and anybody who's never been in a porta potty, uh. you know, there, there's, there's <laughs> something about that that has this lingering impact because our olfactory nerves, our nose is our most powerful memory source. So you've been locked in a porta potty, okay? And that moment, Jonathan, how did you feel? What did you think about yourself? What was going on for you? How old were you? Uh, I, I was about eight years old and I had went on to the golf course in our neighborhood because I thought I was about to die because my best friend, Rachel, had just died, we'll call it a few months earlier, of something called Rice Syndrome. This is, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s, when Rice Syndrome was becoming a thing. And I, the last I had ever talked to her, she said she had a tummy ache. And she was dead roughly, we'll call it two or three days later. And my parents never talked to us about it. So I woke up that morning with a tummy ache. And I thought I was gonna die, so I went to the golf course that was being built in our neighborhood and I didn't know it at the time, but I was sitting inside of a concrete like plumbing tube just waiting to die uh, because I had heard that when you die, the last thing that happens is you expel what's inside of you. And I had seen my dad cry for the first time a few weeks earlier when his dad had died and I didn't want him to find me that way. So I went off to die on my own and the bullies found me in there and they shoved me in the tube or in the uh, porta potty and it was crazy. As soon as you said olfactory, I was literally, that's, I was smelling it in that moment. And I wasn't thinking about death anymore. I was thinking whatever's about to happen to me is actually worse than death. And it was because they tipped it over, rolled it around. I came out of there with my shirt covered in crap, my self-esteem covered in crap. And when I came out, I didn't know if I was allowed to leave and I was so scared and they were laughing at me and I just laughed with them like they were the coolest kids in the whole wide world because I was so scared. I didn't know I could leave until they started throwing rocks and sticks at me and calling me several names you can't pronounce these days that I wouldn't want to. And the good news is I, dying was off my mind at that point, but now I was scared with how am I gonna go home and explain this to my parents? So first time in my life where I learned how to lie. Wow. So not only were you bullied, mm -hmm. but by them, mm -hmm. there was a part of you that wouldn't let you tell your parents what the truth was. That's right. I had, hero, I had hero complex of my parents, which is a very common term. And they had never been vulnerable with me and told me, of a single struggle. The only thing I had ever heard from my mother as I was in school was, you're never allowed to get a B. Your dad never got a B. Don't be lazy. Don't be stupid. You can't get a B. So to me, my parents were heroes and perfect. So I could not go to them. 
in, in my mind, in my mind. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's our beliefs that run everything. It's got nothing to do with your parents. It's got everything to do with what you believed about your parents. Absolutely. So, wow. All right. So now you have a new experience of the world. And that experience you've shared with your daughter. So the opposite of how you were raised, you actually have been very vulnerable with your daughter. Hugely vulnerable. And that's how we ended up working on this project. I had never dealt with my own trauma in my life until the economy was about to crash in 2008. And I was just praying I could keep the doors open, the roof over our head. And I did what I saw my dad do, which was my dad was a workaholic. So I became a workaholic and I, I went home on my birthday, which is 9-11. And it was after about a 17 hour day. I didn't see my own kids. Uh, it's embarrassing, but it's true. That's where I was at in my life. And I walked into the kitchen and there was a handwritten card by my daughter calling me the greatest dad in the world. And I knew in that moment I was failing and failing at the things that truly mattered in life. And it was the first time in my life where I asked for help. And that's what set everything in motion to be what it is today was that, was that moment of becoming the greatest dad in the world and uh, that's what led to her saying, because I've always been so vulnerable with her about my mistakes and what I've learned from them and that failure is not a bad word and it's actually something to celebrate. And uh, so she came to me and said, I want to do this YouTube channel with you, dad, because by this, by this point of the game, I'd actually, uh, you know, been speaking all over the United States to uh, different companies about how to care about their team members. So... Just give me an idea, because we, we left our hero in 2008 when you realized that in your daughter's eyes, you were the greatest dad in the world, but not in your own. Uh -huh. And you reached out for help. Uh -huh. Now, when did the idea of the podcast, what year is that? Well, the asking for help was in 2008. And, uh, and then I'm going to guess, you know, we launched our channel, I believe it was September of 2019. It's amazing how time flies, but we were out fishing together probably about three months prior to launching our channel. And I said, Hey, Kaylee, Hey Gunner, it's time to dream again for the year. What are the dreams you're working on? And that was when Kaylee said her dream was to leave the world better off, start the channel and, and some other things. Awesome. All right. So the YouTube channel, mm -hmm. what's the title of it? <laughs> well, <laughs> Kaylee, Gunner, all of the nieces and nephews that I have, I've got a bunch. They all, you know, I, I came out of college actually to be a school teacher because I didn't want anybody to have a childhood experience like me and uh, went to college a little later in life. They all love that story. So Kaylee said, she's heard me talk about Henry David Thoreau and a lot of other things. And I said, what do you want to call the channel, Kaylee? And she goes, well, dad, as far as I can see it, everybody is kind of metaphorically, not everyone, a lot of people, let me be clear, are metaphorically living in their own porta potty 
And I believe with our channel, Dad, we can help them out of their porta potty like I helped you out of your porta potty. And I said, I love the name. Are you sure? And, you know, we've taken a lot of judgment and criticism over it. And I've asked her periodically if she wants to change the name, but she's very firm on that is the name. That's what we're helping people do. And end of story. All right. So, so now I'm letting two things to say. One, your daughter knows the story mm -hmm. on 2008. She knows the story of the porta potty, but she also knows the story of 2008 with the card and that pivotal moment she owns. She owns what happened after that that helped you get out of that traumatic event to stop carrying that trauma with you. So she owns being the catalyst of that, which is really, really cool. I knew that when you said, as I help you get out of your porta potty, I'm like, oh, this is cool. And so the mission to help people out of their stinking thinking, literally in this case, is what? what tell them the name because I blocked it. Nobody heard you say the name of the podcast before. It's called the Get Out of the Porta Potty Channel. I forgot why she said, because I wrote a book called Hey You, Get Out of the Porta Potty. But I, for some reason on YouTube, I think like the title couldn't be that long. I think it was that simple. So yeah. she went with Get Out of the Porta Potty. I just think, I mean, no one knows what the context is until they start watching the videos. And that's one of the beautiful things is that, yeah, we're not talking about a marketing message here. We're not talking about anything other than this is the challenge of the world that we want to help with. And so your daughter, how old was she in 2019? Well, so she was born in 1999, so she would have been 19 or 20, at which point she told me this. Got it. So, I mean, that's just super cool. That's super cool. And I guess I could have done the math. You did say she was 22 now. But what can we say? All right. <laughs> so, so you've got this whole porta potty, get out of the porta potty movement. Mm -hmm. How did that translate? When did it become... Because uh, I'm imagining 2008, this was not exactly the highlight of your life when you read that card and realized the disconnect. Mm -hmm. No, it, 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 it hurt tremendously. And like I tell, one of the things I do with all of my clients is I have them write out all of their fears, all of their personal faults, and all of the failures. And then we start talking about how can we take these things and make them great? Because that's, that's the real challenge of overcoming our, our trauma. So it's not anything complicated mm -hmm. and it's not anything that's avoiding the trauma. It is just accepting that it was there and then asking, how do we take and make this great? Super simple. You know me, I like simple. I, I don't handle complexity too well. So what happened after 2008? When did dreams become the catalyst for what you're doing now? Well, I owned a wellness facility and it, it was actually very, very successful up till 2008. And it wasn't anything I was doing wrong in 2008. It's just that people were really, really, they were really scared. And uh, 
we, we made it through loving, loving together. And uh, it, it was never really just a wellness facility. It was always a little bit more than that. But what happened is, is I had never really had a best friend in my life. And in 2011, I really got my first best friend in a man named Jay Folk. And he was the father of a three-year-old daughter. And he ended up with liver cancer. And in the span of three months, uh, I lost my best friend and I had felt fallen very, I felt very helpless in it all. Um, and I was rereading man's search for meaning after his death. And my own trauma was to a very healthy place by this time, but it wasn't all the way there yet. But it talked about in the book, taking all the suffering in your life and creating meaning from it. And I wanted to be able to help everyone to the deepest possible level I could help them. And I thought about going back to university and getting a degree in psychology or psychotherapy or, or whatever it was, but I never had had a vision of shutting down my wellness facility. So I thought the next best path was to learn how to be a really great coach for people. So, I just started studying that. I put 10,000 hours in and it was a lot of fun. And I just kind of looked at it as like a, a side thing to my wellness facility. But before I knew it in my coaching company, I had over a hundred clients and I was coaching some real Titans in the business world about what I had learned from the economic downturn and some of the things on how I had came out of that by caring about people really uh, deeply. And for me, it was just, it seemed that, God had a plan for me and that plan was full-time coaching, full-time speaking. Uh, because there is, you know, as you know, there's only so many hours in the day. And, <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. You mean you have to deal with that thing called a clock like I do? Yeah. So I just, I ended up selling my wellness company and just dove deep down into the world of uh, coaching and speaking. And it's as simple as that. All right. So that's the what. I want to understand how dreams became your why and the how. It's, it's a great question. So if you, if you have a conversation with someone and say, hey, how would you like to heal? It's not that exciting. <laughs> oh, let me think. Um, let's see. Jackie, how would you? Ooh, the answer is uh, no. Actually, that sounds painful. Healing no, it sounds painful, painful. but. But if you think about your childhood and you just, the world is an open book and there's wonder and amazement and you're dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. Now, why do you stop dreaming? It's because something's happened. Mm -hmm. So you stop dreaming. So I found that reaching people through their dreams you kind of inherently know as a coach that if they're, when they're going to accomplish those dreams, they're going to have to have healed the wounds of the past because the wounds largely feel us undeserving of living our dreams. So when you get people on the process of dreaming and imagining the brighter future, the immediate turnaround question is this, well, if someone's not living their dreams, we know they've got a certain mindset. I mean, Einstein said it. 
the mindset that got you where you are will not get you, get, you know, lead you out of it. So mm -hmm. we know once we get them to imagine a brighter future, we then can flip that around into the question of, well, who do you need to become? And Got it gets them looking inside for, you know, survivors of trauma, looking in the mirror. You, you saw we did the look in the mirror drill on our, our thing and looking inside, it's scary, but those dreams become such a big why that you can walk side by side with them, be there for them and get them to look inside where all the nightmares are. So the dreaming is code for healing. Got it. Thank you. The dreaming is code for healing. And this concept that you just, you just brought up two very, very powerful things. You know, we will have opportunities to explore both of them, which I'm really excited about. You said something about we stopped dreaming because of something in our childhood. And I started writing down the question, when did I stop dreaming? And then I wrote down, why did I stop dreaming? And then I wrote down, did I stop dreaming? Yeah, and I realized that dreams are not a conversation that I really remember ever having. Um, dreams with a deadline is one of the definitions of a goal. And so you're not talking about goals here. You're talking about dreams. Mm -hmm. And that's different. That's a wide open space that could be potentially really stress-free because there's no deadline. Mm -hmm. There's no objective. It's a dream. So that's really, really cool, Jeff. Did you get any pushback from any groups when you started using the dreaming as code for healing? No, not at all. And, and quite frankly, when we designed our curriculum, we did it with a husband and wife psychotherapy team. Uh, one of my clients was a professional athlete and we used a lot of his input on making sure everything was scientifically sound. And uh, they were all a very great supporter of it. And you now I go back to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 saying, I have a dream. Because everybody really does have a dream inside of them. And uh, it's a much more exciting statement than I have a strategic plan or I have a goal. He knew everybody had a dream. And it's true. Everybody does have a dream. And people tend to think that dreams are a new car or a new house. And of course, we... You know, in our questioning process, we ask a lot of those things, but the, the dreams are really, how do you want your life to look in a year? How do you want your life to look in five years? And then the other cool part about that is, is what people come to realize is that through to really accomplish the dreams, you know, you want to let your mind kind of go on a playground break and dream. But the reality is to actually accomplish the dream, you have to learn to stay hyper present in the moment because the moment is all that is real. So there's lots of crazy cool things that are going on. Um, so we're gonna take the complex and make it super simple for yeah, people. Yeah, it's, it's all super simple. I, I always say, um, one of the great human characteristics is overcomplicating things, such as <laughs> yeah. love, 
love and happiness are the grand prizes. There's, there's nothing higher. And, and we live in a country where people largely treat happiness and love like it's a pawn shop and they throw it on the ground for five cents on the dollar for some egotistical reason. But love and happiness are the grand prizes. So really through our curriculum, uh, the practices with each month, each week are just getting people to practice at love, practice at happiness and who they need to be. Yeah, what's really amazing is the fact that we've pushed love and happiness mm -hmm. over the horizon. I'll be happy after I get. I'll be happy after I get. You know, it's, it's really sad, but that's our cultural norm is to put off being happy. And the bottom line is happiness and love are free. We don't have to have any kind of economic circumstances. We don't have to go into hawk or mortgage anything. They're free. They're available immediately. And we can't see them. And of course, you're right. We have a culture that doesn't value them. Oh, because, well, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, I love everything Jackie said. And that was kind of the amazing part about my suicide story is I was in my car, in the garage, I was breathing in the, uh, the fumes. And I realized that if I completed the task, that my dad would be the one who found me dead. And I thought about that time when I saw him crying for the first time. And I thought, my God, he's going to be crying as he carries me away. And I had just gotten a new medical insurance card at my job that day. And I decided to call the emergency line that was on the card. And I told the lady I was in the car killing myself. And she said, it's my first day on the job. I often wondered if this is like the way they do it. And she said, and I, I know I maybe had a couple minutes left. I don't really know, but she asked to put me on hold. <laughs> that laugh, like I just did is what saved my life because it was in that moment when, I mean, it was as dark as darkness can get. I knew if I was capable of smiling and laughing there and it had come from inside that I was capable of doing it again and again and again. And that was when, for me, I realized what you just said, that happiness really is an inside job. And that there is no way, there's no path, but to learn to be happy again. And we can all learn it. When was that? That was 1996. That was before, uh, you know, any of my kids or anything were born. So... There's something really amazing about how that all played out. Mm -hmm. If the person on the other end of the line had thought that they knew what to say, mm -hmm. it might've played out just a little bit differently. Oh, you know, I... Because you were prepared for what you expected them to say. Uh, oh, I mean, I was dead tired. Uh... I was exhausted. I hated life. I thought I was defective because I had a house and a car and none of it was doing it for me. And uh, mm. I just thought, you know, 
I'm defective. I might as well end it. So fortunately, God was looking out for me and knew exactly what I needed in that precise moment. So what happened next? We're not going to leave everybody in the garage. I mean, what happened next? Because you're on hold with suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. No, you're on hold with your insurance company. Mm -hmm. Got it. You're on hold with your insurance company. And then what? Well, so what happened was she asked to put me on hold. I laughed out loud just as quickly. I knew I could be okay. I turned off. I had a Honda CRX. I turned it off and I opened the garage door and I hung up on her. So this was not a 911 call. So this was a call to my health insurance line. They called the next people who were listed on my health insurance plan, which was my mother and my father. So I just lived a few minutes from them, by the way. So they come roaring into the driveway as did an ambulance and I was taken to a hospital. And uh, I went and I got, I mean, I got help immediately. And then I got help. I started working with someone right after that. And all it took was something that is a standard joke in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that you get put on hold. You get put on hold. That's it. And it saved your life. It saved my life. Well, it's very, very interesting. Because if you had called a suicide intervention line, you mm-hmm. would never have been put on hold. Mm-hmm. It would have been a very different experience. It's actually a really interesting statement because, I mean, I just wonder how many people don't even know that that exists. And when Kaylee and I made our video, which I think has been viewed about 1,200 times now, we made sure we we put some phone number on there in case you're having those thoughts because I didn't even know it existed. Oh yeah. And now they've shortened it. So just FYI, what he's referring to is the national suicide prevention hotline. And that number is 1-800-273-8255. Not that I've had to say this to people, but they've shortened it. Now it's 988. Mm-hmm. You can actually get there by dialing 988. And yes, we put it in a lot of our show notes. Um, I actually think we might start adding it to every single show note and just go back and rewrite some descriptions. Because you're right, if people don't know that there's intervention available, it's 24 seven, it's available by text. I mean, it's just, it's there. But if you don't know it's there, it doesn't do any good. And uh, I'm very happy to see that there's less and less stigma around asking for help these days. Because I remember in my own life, just I, I grew up thinking I had to be like Rambo or the Terminator and I was hurting inside. And I thought if I ask for help, everybody will know how weak and pathetic I am. So I'm so happy to see that that stigma is getting less and less. And I, I spend a lot of time in my life uh, helping pull that stigma down that it's okay to ask for help. When you, when you learn that statistically speaking, that 7.5 out of 10 people have experienced loss, trauma, or betrayal in a primary relationship, a lot of that in the childhood, uh, when you have no tools to deal with that stuff, um, it's, it's pretty staggering. And really to me, it, it explains the world why the world is the way that the world is. 
You know, I agree with you. There's actually a documentary out now called The Wisdom of Trauma. And when I was watching it, I realized that the experience of trauma is so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, PTSD became part of our lexicon mm-hmm. with Vietnam, with veterans. Mm-hmm. It was all about the big emotional challenges of a war and even the war that happened here in the country where we fought over whether we were doing the right thing over there. Mm-hmm. That there were all of this connection got made between what PTSD means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Only veterans have. And the reality is that along came the ACEs, you know, the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences score, where they talked mm-hmm. about trauma with a big T and trauma with a little T, and that it's universal. We all have trauma. We yeah. don't all become traumatized by it. And, you know, I don't know if you've got any theories about why two people can be at the same event and one becomes traumatized and develops all the symptoms of PTSD and the other one doesn't. But well, it's fascinating to me. I mean, you referenced Gabor Mate and uh, I love that guy big time. And uh, I will just say, I, I, I agree with him and, and how early it starts in the process and how the brain gets rewired. And uh, I'm still sharing things about my childhood with my own mother that she never knew uh, that I feel she's ready to hear now because I want her to know who I really am as she's not getting any younger. And, but I, I tell her, I say, you, you didn't do anything wrong, okay? You, you, you couldn't have seen it. I didn't come to you. It was a story in my head. But I tell her, I tell her, I said, your, your love is what saved me from being much worse. Because it was definitely floating around in the back of my subconscious thinking about, you know, I call my mom a saint. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know that they'll ever know, but... I agree with Mr. Matei that it just depends on how early it happens in our lives and the rewiring of the brain. I, I know for myself, I can only speak for me, that all of the things that happened to me as a little boy uh, were extra devastating because it was all under the guise that, well, and I'm not talking about the porta potty incident here. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but all the stuff that happened to me was under the guise of normalcy. You're going to have to say more about that. Well, just, you know, there is physical abuse, there is emotional abuse, and there is sexual abuse. So we'll pick two out of the three, and physical wasn't one of them. So that's the trauma that I, I dealt with. You said under the guise of normalcy. Yeah. Meaning this was something normal happening in your world? When a family member takes you out in the garage and you're little and does things to you, you don't know that it's not normal. Got it. You, you, just, have, a diff, you have a new definition right. of what's normal. Right. Um, unfortunately, I have to absolutely agree with you yeah. that the wiring that gets put in that that moment is so confusing and mm-hmm. so conflicting mm-hmm. you know, that we do get this Um, imprint on our brain about what normal is. 
um, there was a book that I got handed and the, now I'm going to have to give the disclaimer because you say there's a reduction in stigma, but there is not enough of a reduction in stigma oh. around, around things like alcoholism and drugs and suicide and mental health and mental right. illness and all of these concepts. The book I was handed was the adult child's guide to what's normal. And it was written for adult children of alcoholics. Now, neither one of my parents ever espoused to being an alcoholic, but I was exhibiting the behaviors and attitudes of an adult child mm -hmm. that had been raised in an alcoholic home. You know, no theories there. The reality is that I got handed this book. And what I realized reading the book is that their definition of normal and my life experience were about as far apart as I could get. Mm -hmm. And I thought, people really live this way? Part of my brain just dismissed it entirely because that was such a fantasy. It was like watching a TV show from the 50s. It had no basis in reality. And by the way, if anybody's ever seen some of the shows from the 50s, like the Donna Reed show, oh my God, there is no more manipulative woman in the world <laughs> than the way that she handled her husband. You know, so it's not like these beautiful pictures actually taught us useful lessons. But anyway, we learned normal in some very skewed ways. Yeah, we did. And so now I understand what you meant. So mm -hmm. translating your childhood of normal into now you're getting help and there's a challenge. Mm -hmm. How much did you struggle with that? With what they were telling you was really normal compared to what you had lived? I mean, it, it, it was a great struggle. And I mean, n not to get too deep here, but a lot of my memories were very, very repressed, which is a very normal thing. They're very much buried back into the deep recesses of my mind. And I had had this tendency where I didn't ever want anybody to touch me. And if anybody did, I always wanted to scrub myself afterwards. And I had fallen in love with somebody and I kind of, I knew it was love and I knew it was pure and I knew it was great. And I couldn't understand why I always felt that way. So it was when I got help for that, that all of the other was uncovered. And then it was like, where was that all of these years? Some place that kept you safe. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's so much that's misunderstood about our brain's ability to keep us mm -hmm. safe from what we do not have the emotional skills, the emotional resiliency to handle. And our, we, our brains are so elegantly designed for that. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest crime of the century is trying to get people to talk about and dig out without first developing the emotional resilience skills, skills that they didn't have back then. Mm -hmm. If they didn't have them back then, odds are they don't have them now. You know, let's build the emotional resilience first and then let them deal with the trauma. 
you know, that's how, that's how it went down for me. And uh, I would just say in my own particular case, I'm very happy it went, went down that way and that order of operations. It's, it's a, I, I think it is the greatest gift of the shift is that we start building emotional resiliency first now. Yeah. It can change the world. I am absolutely convinced. And I think a big part of building emotional resiliency is recognizing whether or not you've given yourself permission to dream. Jonathan, have you ever worked with people who were just viscerally incapable of dreaming? Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stories of all time, uh, I had met this man in my journey who said, you know, this wellness facility you created is so beautiful and I feel so safe here and I feel so happy here. How did you ever start this place? And I kind of spewed out my whole life story to him about why I wanted to own a wellness facility because uh, getting in shape is kind of an early thing that kind of saved my life. And he goes, and he was crying by the end and said, you need to join the Toastmasters and learn how to tell that story that could save millions of lives. Now, by this stage of the game, my life was all about impacting other lives. And that brings me a lot of joy. So I joined the Toastmasters and one of the people I met there had worked at Baylor College of Medicine, what was an only child and had to quit her job to be a full-time caregiver for her mother from 88 when it looked like she wouldn't live all that long and she ended up living for 11 years. And by the time she came out of the 11 year caregiving journey, she was almost 70. And you know, by this time I'm doing a lot of coaching and I stood in front of the room and uh, at one point, and I was kind of practicing word tracks of things I talk about. And she said, you always have a great energy about you done. Uh, I want to do this coaching thing with you, but I need you to know I don't have any damn dreams. And those were her exact words. I don't like cursing. She goes, and you got to know I don't have any damn dreams. And I said, okay, no worries. Now she's now been with me for five years, started a gorgeous company called Heartlight Enterprises. And she wouldn't mind me saying this. And what she has decided to do with the rest of her life is she took those 11 years she spent caregiving, which she had no regrets. And now she works with people who are on the caregiving journey so that they don't have any regrets. And that became her dream. But for many, 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 many months, in the beginning of every session, she would remind me, I don't have any damn dreams. But... <laughs> We all do. And, and, you know, it might not be the car. It, it can be however you see your future. That's the dream. So I'm going to just repeat something because the microphone volume went down for me. You said it might not be the car. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So one sentence. Wrap this all up into a nice pretty bow, Jonathan. If you can, you can have more than one sentence. If you wanted to leave a message for this audience, for people who are aware enough that suicide, especially teen suicide, is an epidemic, mm -hmm. 
And so they've got enough curiosity to be here. What would you want them to know? You know, I would never go about comparing my trauma to anybody's, but I can tell you after going through what I went through that anyone on here, your future can be bigger, brighter, and more beautiful than you ever could imagine if you're just willing to put some work in. And it will be work that you come to absolutely love and look forward to because life is about relationships and the relationships you will find yourself surrounded with when you decide to go on that journey are so amazing that I wake up in the morning and I can't even believe it's my own life and I do this stuff for a living and it's just great. It's like a fairy tale. There we go. Give yourself permission to dream and you might end up living a fairy tale. I like And it. you're worth it. I mean, when I used to work with the husband and wife mental health counselor team, they said the existential question is, do you deserve? And that most people don't feel as though they deserve, but we all deserve it. We all deserve to dream is a beautiful statement, Jonathan. Thank you for sharing your dream journey with us. Thank you for being part of the mission to make teen suicide a thing of the past. Thank you for having me uh, so much. And uh, it just feels great to make a difference. And uh, there's nothing higher than service. So happy to be doing that today. Okay, so Jonathan, before I let you go, as we are into this dream, you have an amazing gift for everyone. And it is the win the morning, win the day. So can you just connect the dots for people? How will this template help them on their journey to understand the dream? Well, we tell all of our clients that living the life of your dreams and uh, being your greatest self, it's as easy as remembering your ABCs every day. And A stands for your attitude, which consists of your emotions and your mindset. B is your body and C is your connections. So we also know there are two types of people in this world, the people who wake up and they go, good God, and they hit their snooze. And the people who go, good God morning. So the win the day sheet that you have access to, if you will just take five minutes on that sheet every morning, you will begin to win each and every morning. You will begin to win each and every moment. And the quality of your moments, the quality of your mornings will branch out into the quality of your life. So the sheet is very self-explanatory and it will help you develop the mindset of a world-class champion every day. And here's the thing too, my life's about having fun. You're allowed to have fun. It's actually, it's not even like, don't look at it as a worksheet. It's a fun sheet because by the time you get to the second page, you will have a huge smile on your face and you will be ready to conquer the day. Awesome. 
Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you again for being here. And thank you for this great gift that will allow everyone to win their morning and win their day. My pleasure.